So I'm going to uh, challenge you today with what I, in a devotional way, challenged the student body at the Master's University. We did our last chapel Friday. I have the privilege as a campus pastor to kind of sending the student body off each semester at the end. And so this is Christmas, and uh, students have finals and exams this week. Most will be gone by Friday. Uh, There's a a lot of activity there and a lot of stress and maybe anxiety as the semester ends. But uh, many will be leaving sometime this week back to places, families, and friends where, and I have challenged them like I have challenged you, to be an impactful influence. And uh, so I want to challenge you to leverage Christmas. I want to challenge you to use this holiday season for intentional and eternal impact. The genesis for this thought is a combination of what we've been thinking about over these many months about being an intentional and impactful influence, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the, the definite article, defining the fact that you're it. If you don't deliver salt and you don't deliver light, salt and light will not come. You are the salt. You are the light of the earth, everyone everywhere, of the world. Everywhere you go, you are exclusively and uniquely the salt and light of the earth and world. My encouragement to you is to leverage this season, Christmas, as an intentional pursuit of eternal and holiday influence. Last Christmas, I get up early in the morning. I'm usually the first one up at my house. And I was doing my morning routine, Christmas morning. And I get a phone call from a gentleman who's the best I know, at detailing and restoring cars to their best capacity or potential. And uh, I had spoken to Luis a few weeks before and said, hey, can you come look at my car? I bought an old SUV. It, uh, it's had a little bit of a rough life, and I would like to resurrect it. And you have products, and you do things. I've watched you do it, and I'd like you to apply your magic to my SUV, 190,000 miles. Um, It's got life in it, but you got to go find it. And uh, he 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 uh, he said he would. He said I'll go come out and give you an estimate. And you know when he called, Christmas morning. I pick up the phone, says Luis, and I say, Hey, Luis. He said, Yeah. Can I come out and give you an estimate on your car? And you know it took me back. It's Christmas morning, and I said, Oh, okay because I'm the only one up. We're not going to in any way distract from the family celebration. So Luis shows up a little bit later, and he looks at my car and gives me a price, and I walk with him back to his truck, and I said, Luis, I said, this is Christmas. Why are you doing this on Christmas? And he's studying to be an accountant. He's going to school full-time. He's running this side business, detailing and washing cars, and he said, I'm trying to get caught up. And he said, this is just a good day for me to catch up. I've been so busy. 
And uh, I said to him, do you know what Christmas is? And he looked at me in a way that communicated he actually really didn't know what Christmas was, other than a big holiday where you buy gifts and exchange them and eat food. And I said, do you mind if I tell you why you ought to be celebrating differently today? So I got to share the good news of the story of Christmas. And we have a relationship. It's uh, not a, a new conversation in terms of him knowing me and he knows what I do. And we've had conversations in the past, but never explicitly at this level related to the gospel. And I said, Luis, Christmas is the celebration according to the Bible, which is the revelation of reality, of God becoming a man. Of the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, you know, Luis, this isn't just random chance and time and we're not evolved. It's God created. And man fell. Explain the fall of Adam and the impact of it. And God so loved the world, he sent his son, God the son, to rescue and restore. And what we celebrate today, I'm happy for you to give me an estimate. I just really want you to get what this is all about. What we're celebrating is God loving us enough to become one of us. To show us who God is. To live a life we couldn't live. On the way to dying a death. And paying a price we could not pay. And if God didn't love us and reveal himself to us, we could not know forgiveness of sin. We could not have hope. That's why angels sang, and that's why we ought to be singing. It was just such a precious divine appointment, to use the words of those who are committed to sharing the good news. And it triggered a thought that I want to begin with today. I want you to leverage Christmas with the assumption that people don't know the story of the grace of God in the appearing of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to assume they know it. I want you to invest intentionally in opportunities where, and this is maybe a way you could do it, do you mind if I share with you what the Bible says about why we ought to celebrate Christmas? To be followed up with And can I tell you why I celebrate Christmas? The big idea this morning is leveraging Christmas for intentional and eternal influence. I thought about it. I I, I might have said it on Friday, but I'm going to do it today. I've entitled this Sweet and Salty. Uh, Christmas at my house growing up included a can of cashews. And I've had, you know, sometimes my mother would buy us the cashew pieces because you could afford them. But at Christmas, we got the full cashews. And man, it it was a delight. I don't know why it was such a joy to me, but to get my can of full cashews, and you know what else I got? A big can of sweet and salty popcorn. And there's something about sweet and salty. 
I've asked you to consider your responsibility to be salty. This morning, I want to challenge you to be sweet and salty. Sweet with your attitude, sweet with your actions, and sweet with the good news of your testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Sweet and salty. Because you're you're both. You're salty because you're influential. You're sweet because you're the way a Christian ought to be. And some of you are going to be with family and friends that don't bring out the best in you. You're going to have opportunities to bear witness by way of attitude and action, which is cardinal and critical to being an agent of influence. So that's the introduction, and that's the goal, sweet and salty, holiday influence. And my focal point comes out of chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 3, verse 4, and it revolves around the word appearing. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. This is Titus. Did I tell you that? Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I could tell, by the way. It's like, I should turn. Where do I turn? (laughs) Titus. All right, just a few backside highlights while you're turning. Titus has been commissioned by Paul to go to this island in the Mediterranean called Crete. 600 years before this letter was written, commentary on the culture on this island by the poet Euripides went like this. Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. And then Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in verse 13 about that commentary, this testimony is true. Now listen, 600 years before this letter was written and Paul affirmed this reflection, these people have been debauched, dysfunctional, and dark. And I was thinking this week about how rapidly our culture is declining. I mean, it's an unsettling rate. You listen, you watch, and social media gives us a clue as to where we're headed. Man, things have changed in the last few decades, yes? Think about 600 years of declining debauchery and dysfunction. So Paul commissions Titus to this island to appoint elders for the church that is newly being established and to coach God's people as to how they are to live in a culture that is so broken in a way that is impactful and influential. Always liars means you lie without a conscience. You can tell a lie without any expression that you're fabricating and falsifying reality. You know anybody like that? They tell a lie so good you don't know when they're lying and when they're not. This is 600 years of developing that skill. It's the one politicians in our country have developed. Wild beasts. 
are killers without a conscience. They injure without a conscience. Lazy gluttons, they live without a conscience. They eat, they're self-interested. This is the culture that Paul is addressing, and this is the world that he wants the church to be influencing. Highlighting the motivation for proper conduct in that situation. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, basically says, be a good example. Live fitting with sound doctrine, verse 1. And he calls out older men, older women, young women, young men, verse 6. To live, and here's a repetitive word which highlights a theme, verse 2, be sensible older men. Verse 5, to the young women, be sensible. To the young men, verse 6, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Sensible is to live your life. The word is an interesting word. It has the word diaphragm in it, or it, it, it means to breathe, to live life safely, securely, and wisely. Live in light of your reality. Function in light of your reality so you will live. We could use the word commonsensical. Live this way in a culture like this one in light of the fact that you're a Christian. You're to be a, an example, which is what these first 10 verses are. Telling older men and younger women and older, encouraging young women to love their husbands, love their children, sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands. Watch verse 5 at the end, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Verse 8, or verse 7, in all things, or 6 rather, likewise urge the young men to be sensible, that's that Consistent word, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent, the opposer, may be put to shame, watch this, having nothing bad to say about us. Tell the slaves, the bond slaves or the employees, to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Watch verse 10 at the end. But showing all good faith, why? That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So live in such a way that the word of God is not dishonored, verse 5. Live in such a way, verse 8, that they have nothing bad to say about you. Live in such a way, verse 10, that the doctrine of God, our Savior, is adorned in every way. Be a good example. Why would that be true? Because there's no influence if you're not a good example. You're worthless, verse 16. They, you can profess to know God, chapter 1. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed, because their conduct is not commensurate with their claim. But I, all of that to get to verse 11. Because verse 11 has a connecting word. Here is the ground or reason 
for exemplary conduct. Salty and sweet. The ground or reason, verse 11, is because, for, the grace of God has appeared. Epiphino. Phino is to turn to shine on something. Epi is a prefix. It's like shine brightly. It'd be like if the room went dark and we left the, or everything went dark and then we turned these spotlights on and all of a sudden into the darkness. And remember, there were 400 years of darkness before the New Testament. The end of the Old Testament, there were 400 years of silence, God not talking, no prophet, no communicating. Then John the Baptist, the forerunner, and then this spotlight, the star of the show, the stage of the world, the world in deep darkness, the spotlight comes on, the appearing. The appearing, verse 11, which is the ground or reason for the motivation to exemplary sweet and salty behavior, verse 11, for the grace of God, you know what that is, unmerited favor, has appeared like a spotlight on the stage of the world, bringing salvation to all men. Now, bringing salvation in the sense that it brings this grace appearing in the person of Jesus Christ in his arrival, his incarnation brought the potential for salvation to all men, the knowledge of the means of salvation to all men. That's what it means in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, and the reason why you're to live in the way you're to live is so that that grace will be displayed in you, and that grace will be communicated by you. Christmas is an opportunity to talk about the story of the appearing of the grace of God. The revelation of God with us. And I want to encourage you to put yourself in a position by way of your example and by way of your behavior and by way of your intention and commitment to communicate the goodness of God and the grace of God that is your motivation and the heart of your communication. I want to talk to you about the grace of God that has appeared. Listen, bringing salvation to the world. Luis, you know what Christmas is? It's that. It's the unmerited favor of God appearing to the world in order to bring salvation to the world. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. And I'll just punctuate this incarnation as the reality that promotes reconciliation, salvation to the world. Colossians chapter 1, for it was referring to Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Verse 19 is where we're going to pick it up. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, pleroma, to dwell in Him. A reference to the incarnation, God in the flesh. All of the fullness of God dwelling in the person of Jesus Christ. It was God's good pleasure, incarnation. 
Verse 20, why incarnation? And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So verse 20, this incarnated one is the reconciler by way of his life given on our behalf, his death in our place, his life gifted to us, the crucifixion and the reconciliation through his blood. Verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, this is referring to Jesus, in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. The good news of Christmas is the appearing of God in the flesh in order to provide for a solution you can't provide, to satisfy a debt you cannot satisfy. You have at Christmas the opportunity in one verse to say, let me tell you about Christmas. This is the grace of God. On, re- on a world stage, in a dysfunctional dark world, the light coming on and salvation being offered and provided for the world. Those who will believe will be saved. Jesus is the means to that salvation. It is through his blood. It is through his body. It is through his work. He paid a debt you cannot pay. And he lived a life you couldn't live. Explain the gospel. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What do you mean the word? The logos of God. In the beginning was the word. Eternal. Already was. Whenever the beginning was, he already was. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. There's a relational reality about Jesus Christ. He was with God as a person. Eternal relational. He's a person. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Undeniable, eternal, personal, relational. All things came into being by Him, and nothing was made that He didn't make. That one became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God in any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus Christ, He has exegeted Him. He's explained Him. So get what, guess what you can do this Christmas? Tell the story of His appearing. Tell it. It's the grace of God. It's the motivator for good behavior. It's the foundation for everything. That's what makes you sweet. That's what makes you salty. Because you are recognizing that this great work of God, this reconciling work of God, is the product of the grace of God, which appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation to all men, which is why verse 12, chapter 2, goes on to say, because of this reality, it's just not, it's a motivation 
for a good example, it's a motivation for living in a way you ought to live, instructing us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live, here's our word again, sensibly, consistent with the reality of what has been done for us and consistent with the world around us, righteously and godly in the present age. You see that righteously and godly in the present age. That's sensible in light of what he has done and what they need to see. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope. And here's the word again, the appearing, the revelation, the spotlight to come on. That's what you're waiting for. That's what your hope is fixed on. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Here he is named Christ Jesus. And here's what he did, who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us that we, he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession so that we will be zealous for good deeds. Sweet and salty is a good example motivated by an incomprehensible, I can't believe God would do this gracious work, which includes then living a life of good deeds. I think I told you this before, but the word for good, there's two of them in the Greek language. One is agathos, good as in helpful, beneficial. Cars broke down, you pull over and you help out. Tire needs changed, you do it, helpful. This is Kalos. This is kalon deeds. This is bigger. It's helpful. It's beneficial. But it has this nuance, this force to it, that what you do, this zeal for good deeds, these good deeds that you're to engage in and learn how to execute, that's five times in this passage, you're exhorted to good deeds, to learn it, to be zealous for it, like zealous means, I cannot wait. Like Christmas morning and children, zealous for that, zealous to do a deed, to do a work, ergon, to do a work that is so helpful, so beneficial, and so virtuous, and so valuable that it's considered beautiful. It's inspiring. It's like, wow. Here's what sweet and salty includes. Being the kind of Christian that not only models exemplary Christian behavior, whatever age bracket you're in, but you are zealous for the kind of deeds that causes people to be inspired to consider something beyond the action. Beautiful, virtuous, valuable, inspiring. Here's a way to think about it. The good deeds that Paul is exhorting to for the church that gets the appearing of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the church who is to be a light in a dark world, a debauched world, do the kind of stuff that causes people to see Jesus because there's no other explanation for that. You're not just a philanthropist. You're doing the kind of things that are so sacrificial, so compelling, so virtuous and valuable that people see beyond the act. 
They're inspired by it. They're affected and impacted by it. The second time the word appearing is used, I want to call your attention to, is in verse 4 of chapter 3. And the nuance in verse 4 of chapter 3 is not global. Listen to me, it's personal. It's not the story of Christmas. It's your story. It's what the incarnation of God with us did in your life. I want you to follow with me. And kind of to set it up is verse 3, chapter 3. After he says, have a good attitude to all men. After he's called them to be ready for every good deed. That's verse 1. Good attitudes to everyone. And I like the end of verse 2. Showing every consideration for all men. Be courteous. Have a good attitude. And the rationale, verse 3, is for we also once were... And let me fill this in before I outline the specifics. For we once were like them. The reason you're gracious with them is because you used to be them. You understand what it's like to be what's defined here in verse 3. For we also. You hear what Paul said? We, Paul, you, Titus. Every single believer is defined in part by the characteristics in verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves. The word foolish is the word mind with a big X over it. You're dumb. You behave stupid. Now, we're not allowed to use stupid at our house. We consider that to be inflammatory, but it's certainly appropriate at times. It's when you do things where, what are you thinking? It's like smoking pot and calling it good for you. All you have to do is read any data on what pot does to your head. I went to school with guys who I played football with at Brown, and they had elaborate chemistry sets for smoking pot in their room. And I watch guys. You can't get into Brown unless you can think. I watch guys who excelled academically fade dramatically. The thematic, consistent reality... Smoking pot. They went from thinking to not thinking. They went to motivated to not motivated. They went from excited to anxious. Smoking pot is dumb. And we've all done dumb stuff. I've not been a pot smoker, but I've been a dumb human being along life's highway. We all have been dumb. We've all done things where somebody could look at us and go, what in the world were you thinking? Truth is, you weren't thinking. We were all dumb. The word mind with a big X over it. Disobedient is unpersuadable. Here's another word for that one, stubborn. Disobedience is rebellion. Rebellion is stubbornness. It's when you know what to do and you refuse to do it. We were all dumb. We were all disobedient. We were all stupid. We were all stubborn. 
deceived. The word deceived has the idea of you were misled, but you were misled because you were roaming around. You couldn't stay on course. You weren't interested in staying on the path, so you were susceptible to anybody who invited you off of it. You were deceived because you were looking for opportunities to depart the path that would have been correct and right, one defined by the conscience implanted by the person of God in all those who enjoy the benefit of the law of God written in their hearts, and you're deceived enslaved to various lusts lusts, and pleasures. So you're stupid, you're stubborn, you're a wandering pursuer of voices off the path, and it results in slavery to various desires and pleasures, and you waste your life, you spend it in selfishness and in envy. The word hateful is interesting. Hateful is not directed to someone else. It's directed toward yourself. You consider yourself disgusting because in any moment of honest, objective appraisal, you know where you look in the mirror and go what reality should cause you to go, you know what? That's not good. That's disgusting. It has the idea of self-hatred. And self-hatred is manifested in hating others. I hate me, so part of the reason why I so much dislike you is you remind me of what I'm not. Envy, hateful, hating one another. Verse 4. By the way, that's who I was. Now listen, I got saved at six. Somebody asked me at the university Friday, well, what happens if I didn't get saved earlier? And that really didn't look like me. I'll tell you what I would tell them. I got saved at six, but I've had glimpses of this fleshly reality along life's way. Harry Walls, despite the fact that I was genuinely saved at six and had a consistent trajectory as a child of God has had seasons or moments or expressions where these carnal, fleshly, depraved realities were testimonies of who I was and how I was behaving. I get a glimpse of what I got saved from. Are you with me? So you don't have to live like the devil on a holiday to have a testimony. This is your testimony. And if you got saved young like I do, you just didn't get a full experience of what you were capable of. But you've seen it. And if you say you haven't seen it, you're in self-denial right now. And you'll have friends and family who we can call and help you see what you're not willing to see. (laughs) All of that to get us to verse 4. But when, watch this, you see the but, this is who we were, adversative conjunction, on the other hand, but when the what? The kindness of God and his love, the kindness of God, our Savior, I don't want to skip that word, and his love, 
It's the word from which we get philanthropy. It's not agapao. It's, it's not divine love. It's affection for. When God's kindness, which is helpful action, driven by a heartfelt emotion, when the kindness of God our Savior and his affection for mankind, do you see our word, appeared? Verse 4, or 5 rather, he saved us. Now, I want to argue that verse 4 is not the global grace of God that appears to the world. Verse 4 is the affection, kindness, love of God and his grace that appeared to whom? Me. This is who I was, and he saved us, me, because I'm in the us. This is a personal appearing. This is the light coming on in Harry's life. I was six years old in an outdoor camp meeting in southern New Jersey, front row with my friend Don Crow, typically getting in trouble for misbehaving. I would make it through halfway through the sermon before my father would usher me out for some instruction. (laughs) And I was a regular. I was in that stubborn zone, I guess. But not that night. August 1964, some evangelists from North Carolina explained the gospel and the need for it. The wages of sin is death, and death is not just the grave. Death is the second death. Death is a lake of fire. Death is hell. And the only solution to that situation, because all have sinned, is a Savior named Jesus Christ. And you can have forgiveness of sin tonight if you will repent and believe. And at my church growing up, in order to transact that business, you had to go forward. Well, I didn't have far to go. Now listen, I grew up as an Arminian. I grew up in the Wesleyan Church, which means you could choose it and you could lose it. Fundamentally, Arminianism says that salvation is in part God and in part you. You pick it. It's your will. You choose to get in, you can choose to get out. You live in sin, you lose it. That's how I grew up. You know how many times I got saved? A lot. (laughs) But you know what? The only one I remember is that August 1 in 1964. Because I believe that's when I became a Christian. Because I remember it. And I went forward and I became a different person. You know what happened that night? The kindness and affection of God appeared to me. And he saved me. Now, the good news is when I was at Brown University, not hardly learning any truth in the classroom, the guy that I introduced you to a few weeks ago introduced me to the truth of God's word, which says that he who began a good work will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation is God's from beginning to end, and I can't lose it. The reason I'm a Christian is because of the choice he made about me before the foundation of the world. He loved me in advance. I couldn't earn it, and I couldn't deserve it, and my whole My resume was verse 3. That was your resume. 
And then the light appeared. The affection of God appeared to me. And as a six-year-old boy, I was saved. Verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, and I want to say to me, He saved us. I'm going to say He saved me. You could say He saved, fill in the blank, your name. Saved His rescue. Save His heal. Sozo is a word to be delivered. It includes healing and rescuing. I'm in the process of being healed from the effect of the fall. That's sanctification. I've been remedied by way of my status before God forensically. That's justification. I've been saved from sin, its power, and its consequence. And I am being saved by its, from its effect. God's kindness and God's affection, like a light, has appeared to me. And it saved me. He saved me. Listen, God isn't helping people who are trying to save themselves. He's helping people who are trying to damn themselves. He saves those people. He saved us, verse 5, not, do you see it? This is emphatic. Not on the basis of works or deeds which we have done in righteousness. There's none righteous, no, not a single one. There's none that doeth good. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of works, Ephesians 2. Let me just pause. I want you to leverage Christmas to tell the story and to tell your story. Can I tell you why I celebrate? That's an easy question. Can I tell you why this day really matters to me? Because it involves the appearing of the grace of God to the whole world, and it involves the appearing of the kindness and love and affection of God to me. And he saved me. And you bear witness by way of testimony to what that salvation involved, and it was not merited. It was not your work. We already read the passage. It was his work. Verse 14, he gave himself for us. He rescued us. Here's a word for you. He redeemed us. Verse 14, that he might redeem us. That's retrieve. It's recover. He ransomed us. His life for our life, redemption, reconciliation, transformation, not my work, his, his work. Here's where your testimony begins. God has saved me by his life-giving son. And God has, listen to this one, changed me by his life-changing spirit. It was by the Son of God who gave his life, and it's by the Spirit of God who did his work in me. Look at what verse 5 says. But according to his mercy, 
So we got grace, we have affection of God, kindness of God, we have grace of God, we have the mercy of God, meaning I don't get what I deserved. I get what I didn't deserve, that's grace. I don't get what I do deserve, that's mercy. But according to his mercy, now watch this, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Washing is the word to be completely immersed. I was totally cleansed. I was dirty. I was guilty. I was in jeopardy. And I got washed. All of the darkness and the toxins and the blackness of my sinful condition were changed cleansed. And you know how that happened? By the remarkable, miraculous gift, listen to me, of regeneration. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, generation, genesis. A creation with a prefix that says, again, I'm a recreation. Harry Walls is not refurbished. I'm recreated. I'm born from above. God didn't just clean me up. He cleansed me by, listen, remaking me. This is a new creation, a second creation. This is born from above. This is spiritual birth. I've been cleansed. I've been washed completely like I was immersed. But it wasn't because God rubbed me down. He remade me. I'm a different person. I'm, that's what the next part, renewing is brand new. It's the word new with a prefix that intensifies it. This is not refurbished or restored. This is not fixed up. I was messed up. This is transformed. When God's goodness, grace, kindness and affection appeared to me. He changed me. He delivered me. He rescued me. He saved me. And he did so by the person of Jesus Christ in his redemptive act. And he did so by the work of the Holy Spirit, by his transformative act. He remade me. I remember I bought my first car here in, in uh, California, um, brand new. First new car I'd ever had. Finally got enough resources to buy the car that I wanted. I was so proud of it. Karen and I had just gotten married. She wasn't so excited as I was. But I, I really enjoyed it. Had a whopping five months, and I stopped at a stoplight in Canyon Country, and I glanced in the rearview mirror, and it kind of instantly all added up. I saw this big construction truck begin to swerve, and I saw smoke from the tires all equated with he wasn't going to stop, even though I had stopped. And he took my sweet little brand-new car and bent it. Back in, bent. They towed it away. I got a call from the insurance company. Uh, Harry, we're going to fix your car. You're going to fix that car? It's my brand new car. It doesn't look new. I don't know what you're going to do. Do you do miracles? 
over half of the retail price they were going to spend in repairing my car. You know what I wanted? Not that. If I'm paying for a new car, I want a new car. I don't want a fixed by an auto body shop car. That's not the manufacturer. Listen, I'm not opposed to fixing your car. I'm opposed to fixing my brand new car at that level. So I hired a lawyer. Mr. Lawyer talked to Mr. And Mr. Insurance decided we're not going to fix Harry's car because he doesn't want a refurbished new car. He wants a new car. And I'm not typically a fan of lawyers except for Han. Han's my favorite lawyer. (laughs) But my lawyer got me retail price for my car, which I didn't pay. I paid $3,000 less. So I go to Glendale with my retail value, and I walk into the showroom, and I get to pick. Now, if you want to go to heaven and you're a car guy, that's your day. Money in your pocket, options on the floor. That's renewing. It's not fixing. It's recreating. It's remaking. Listen to what you can do this Christmas. You can talk about the story that has resulted in your story. And your story is about rescue. This is who I was. This is who I am. This is about redemption. He redeemed me. This is about God remaking me. Oh, I'm not everything I'm going to be. The ultimate day, I'm going to realize my full potential. But I'll tell you what, I'm not what I was. He remade me. I've been born again. I've been born from above by the work of the whole. I've been washed from the inside out. And I'm brand new. I'm a new creation. Can you say amen to that? Listen, Cornerstone, this is the gospel. This is about Jesus Christ, God so loving the world, appearing to provide for something nobody can secure without his presence and his provision. It's about what he did for you. I told students the other day, there's one thing that is very hard to refute, and that is your testimony. You might have opinions about how the world was made. You may be able to refute whether the Bible is inspired or not. You may have reasons to debate me, but I'll tell you what you can't debate is what God has done in me. And I know that's not authoritative, but it's powerful. Remaking. Final thought as we come to a close. Oh, we are at the end, aren't we? Can I do one more thing? Can you turn? Well, let me read this, and then I'll have you turn. The Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom he poured out upon us richly. So the Holy Spirit was poured out richly by Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he redeemed us, and then he provided through the work of the Spirit to transform us. Verse 7, that being justified, that's declared righteous, that's positional, forensic and legal, guaranteed, one-time, finished work, that being justified by his grace, we might, watch this, might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I just want you to focus on the made heirs. 
Made heirs means I've not only been remade, I've been repositioned. I'm not just a new person, I'm in a new place. I'm an heir, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies by way of position, privilege, and provision, and opportunity because of what God has done for me. I get everything Jesus has. Can you let that sink in? I'm an inheritor. I'm a joint heir. I'm an heir in the father's family like his firstborn son. I enjoy privilege and an inheritance that the world cannot take away. It is, I have an earnest, that's the Holy Spirit, like an engagement ring, which guarantees that the fullness of that inheritance I will receive in its fulfillment. But I am an inheritor today at Grace Church. What's today? The 12th? Yeah. 2021, December the 12th, as a remade, as a redeemed and rescued man. Through the grace and work of another, I enjoy a seat at the master's table. And every generous gift that he would give to his son, he dispenses to me in his fatherly wisdom. That's who I am. And that's part of my story. You know what I am? I'm a rich man. Second Samuel Chapter 9, turn there. I want to read you one thing, show you one favorite illustration, and somebody will save you a seat in the sanctuary. (laughs) Second Samuel. This is a type of restoring kindness. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul, the first king of Israel, and the enemy of David. Jonathan and Saul died in a battle together. Jonathan left a five-year-old boy by the name of Mephibosheth, whose name means mouth of shame. Now, I'm not sure who named that guy, but something was bad about that event. His, His name was, how would you like that, Harry? Mouth of shame. That's Mephibosheth. When they heard the news that Dad and Grandpa were killed in the battle. The nurse that was taking care of this five-year-old boy ran and did something dramatic to the child that resulted, dropped him, did something that related to his, he became lame. He couldn't walk. Mephibosheth. David ascends to the throne. The competitor, the adversary, Saul, is dead. Jonathan, his friend, has died. The grandson of the enemy, Saul, is alive, Mephibosheth. Verse 1, chapter 9. David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? You see that word? We saw kindness of God toward us. This is the kindness that David wants to show to the house of Saul because of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, Yes, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet... Watch verse 3. Is there yet not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of what? Of God. So this is a type of God's kindness on display. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. 
So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now, let me tell you what Lodabar means. House of nothing. That's what translated it means. House of nothing. And King David sent and brought him, that's Mephibosheth, mouth of shame, from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, land of nothing, house of nothing. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, verse 6, the son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. And David, verse 7, said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness, here's our word again, to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. Now watch this, because it's going to be repeated. And you shall eat at my table regularly. Verse 8, again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard, watch this, a dead dog like me? And the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to all his house I, give, I have given to your master's grandson, Saul's grandson Mephibosheth. Verse 10, And you and your son, Ziba, you and your family and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. And you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, now watch this, Mephibosheth. Mouth of shame, from the house of nowhere and nothing, your master's grandson shall eat at my table regularly. Verse 11, Ziba said to the king, according to all that my king, the Lord the king, commands his servant, so shall your servant do. So Mephibosheth, watch the end of verse 11, ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. I want to close with this punctuating point. He is an example of the kindness of God that takes somebody who's from nothing, who deserves nothing. He's from the house of the enemy, who can do nothing. He cannot walk. And sits, sits, seats him at the king's table and treats him like a son. That's your testimony. Tell it. And let somebody be blessed by the story of his appearing and your story of his appearing to your life. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Mephibosheth. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness. Thank you for your kindness and affection. Help us to tell it. Help us to share it. Help us to celebrate it. Make us sweet and salty for the glory of God and for the good of those that we love and you have providentially placed in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.